0: All right. Good morning, guys. Try it again. Good morning, guys. Much better. My name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we are in the series called I Am. We are looking at the I Am statements in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is talking about uh, what is unique about Him. And we're going to be digging in before we do. Um, just a reminder, get involved with Affordable Christmas. This is, uh, this is one of those events, really, it is an all-hands-on-deck kind of event. We need everybody involved to pull this off, um, and uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things that I guarantee as you sacrifice to get involved, you'll get, out, you'll get joy and blessing out of it. I mean, we've done this thing, uh, what, three, four years in a row now, I forget exactly, and, and each year it gets bigger, and, and um, what I find is that when people start serving, they want to come back and serve again. Uh, It really is um, a lot of fun. But one of the most practical ways you can get involved is very simply um, giving some gifts. We have 72 families signed up. We have another 40, I think, on the waiting list. Right now we've committed to serving 190 kids uh, with our event. That means we need 760 gifts. We have 50 right now. Um, we're not panicking cause that's fairly typical at this stage in the game, but I am going to re- encourage you to get involved and some simple ways to do that. There are some Christmas trees out there. Just go out and pull one of the ornaments off. Uh, those ornaments basically represent gifts. And when you take the ornament, you can use that and put it on your Christmas tree. And, and that's awesome. But it also is you saying, I will provide these gifts and then you can just bring them in and drop them in the basket, um, next week or, or whenever. Uh, the other way is to simply give some money. Uh, We have a group of um, committed volunteers uh, who are... <laughs> have have bravely um, uh, allowed themselves to basically go out on uh, good friday, so they 're going to be getting up at like three or four a m and facing the insane crowds risking their lives, uh, potentially being trampled to death in order to purchase gifts at the best prices of the year, and so they will make, be making very, very good use of the money that we donate um, specifically to uh, affordable Christmas to purchase gifts and so um, you know, commit to buying gifts yourselves. That's a great way to do it. Give money. That's a great way to do it. Um, and also get involved. Uh, get involved. Jump in. Help us serve. It is. It really is a lot of fun. There's so many moving parts on this thing. We've got personal shoppers. We've got setup up and tear down. We've got people that are cooking, people that are that are serving, people that are um, just ushering families from one place to the other. We have people doing child care. We have, we, have, we have all this stuff going on at this event. And it only happens because we really have a small army of people that are committed to serving in the name and in the love of Jesus. And so I encourage you to jump in and do it with us. I guarantee you will be blessed. It's 19 days until the event, uh, which sounds like a long time. It's really not. This is kind of like that red line zone where pretty much things have to come together. And so I encourage you to jump in and be part of it. All right, grab your Bibles. This morning we are going to John chapter 8. Open up your iPhones or or your apps. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the floor in front of you or should be one on the floor around you. Grab one of those Bibles and go ahead and open up to page 894 uh, to go to John chapter 8. We are looking this morning at the third of the I am statements uh, where Jesus is basically um, speaking of himself. So we're listening to Jesus in his own words. And, and these statements, as, as you're going to see, if you haven't already, they are deceptively simple. They are the kind of statements that you can just run right over the top of without really thinking about what's going on. But they, they are loaded with meaning that is both challenging and encouraging. And, and kind of the premise behind this, this whole series is, is that we believe that, that as we come to know Him as He is, we are going to be freed to be who we were created to be. So as we come to know Him, we come to know ourselves. And so this morning, as we look at this statement We're going to be looking at Jesus in his own words and considering the implications for us. All right, John chapter 8, verse 12. It's a short one. We get one verse today. All right, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The word of the Lord. Would you guys pray with me? Father, I pray that you will. Open the eyes of our understanding this morning. The Spirit, you will do what only you can do, and that is to uh, speak to our hearts, that you wouldn't allow us to simply come and interact with ideas or analyze thoughts, or but Lord, we would come into the presence of a person, that we would be melted by your love, and in the melting, find the place to best receive and experience the blessing that pours out through your Son. So, Father, I pray that you will do your work here this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this morning, we're looking at another fairly audacious claim. (laughs) That's kind of crazy, right? Um, This is the kind of thing that if somebody comes up and and you're in a mild conversation with them and they say this sort of thing, you're probably going to get a little nervous. You know what I'm saying? Like they, they, they lock onto you with their eyes staring at you and they're like, I'm the light of the world. You're like, hmm, we're all bright lights. We all shine dimly in this dark place. Where's the chicken? Right? It's like, how do I get out of this awkward conversation? That's one of those moments when people start talking like this, you're like, this makes me nervous. Right? But they lock on, man. They will not break eye contact. I am the light of the world, right? I mean, this is, I wonder if his disciples felt this way. Like he just, he just kind of out of the blue, right? There's no context. Uh, According to the story, a lot of things are happening and all of a sudden he just, "Mm, I am the light of the world, right? And then it leads into an argument with the Pharisees. And then in chapter nine, uh, he ends up saying it again, right? In chapter nine, verse five, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Um, This is kind of crazy. I mean, it's it's kind of an audacious statement. And so what ends up happening is is I think sometimes we take these statements and we make them easier to deal with. We decide what they mean to us instead of what he meant when he said it. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of time and just think about what in the world he meant, right? Um, what would lead him to say this? And, and in, in saying it... Um, what is the meaning that we should take away? So think about it. Let's start here. When we talk about the light of the world, what is the one thing we would all universally agree upon, right? Whether you're living during the time of Christ or you're living now, it is, of course, the sun, right? The sun is the light of the world that is universally accepted and non-disputed unless I don't know. You're from Mars, right? I mean, this is the light of the world is 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 the sun. And so I I did a little bit of research. I mean, I came to find out it's kind of important. Right? I mean, it's kind of powerful, right? I'm not a scientist, but but 1.3 million earths could fit inside the sun. It's big. Um it it has 386 billion billion megawatts of power. I don't even know what that means. I just know it's a lot, right? It's, it's big. And some of you are like, well, I'm scientific. Can I explain to you all the different layers? I don't care. I really don't want to know. All I need to know is that it's super powerful. And so you got all this power coming out of the core of the sun, and it moves through these different layers of the sun until it finally comes out and becomes light. And that light comes out through the universe, and that light makes life possible. That's kind of the heart of it, Right? The earth rotates around the sun like a rotisserie and the sun heats it, right? That's why if you're down in the Florida Keys, you look like a lobster. If you're on the North Pole, you look like a popsicle because the, the areas that are closer to the sun get a greater level of, of heat and, and warmth from the sun. But in the end, the entire earth is dependent on the light that comes from the sun. So what does light do? What does this, what does this light do? Well, of course, it provides warmth. It fends off the dark coldness of the outer reaches of space, right? It allows us to have this pocket of warmth, this place where life is possible, which is pretty awesome. Uh, I stepped out of the, my front door yesterday morning. It was like, I don't know, in the 20 degrees or something, but the sun was out, and the, it, you could feel it. Like I was wearing a black shirt, and you could just feel the warmth on your shoulders. And I was like, man, I am in that moment so thankful, for the sun. It gives warmth. It allows you to see things, right? How many coffee tables would you completely smash your shins on if there were no light? I mean, it would be really difficult to do life without the revealing aspects of life. It gives us warmth. It gives us direction. It, it allows us to, to see what's around us. But more than that, light is what creates beauty in many ways, right? You guys ever do the science experiment where you put light through a prism and it comes out like a, like a rainbow, right? Maybe you didn't do that. Maybe you didn't go to science class, but you've seen a rainbow in real life where water comes through, where water diffracts the light, right? The reason we understand color and we see the beauty of the world around us is light. Light comes down and interacts with the things around us and refracts light and reflects light and absorbs light. And and that's what creates all the variety and the shades and the color and the beauty. So light not only gives life and gives direction but it creates a space of of beauty and um, and safety. Light allows us to to um, know our environment, to know where we are and and where we're going. It, it reveals to us threats and and offers to us safety. Light is fairly important. Darkness, on the other hand, um, when you think about darkness, darkness is simply the absence of light. Right, wherever there is not light, there. Is darkness and, and darkness as we know it is powerless and passive. Um, in the presence of light, it simply flees, right? You can go down into the darkest cave and turn on the smallest flashlight. And that light will overcome the darkness. It doesn't matter how oppressive, how deep the darkness is, a single match has the power to dispel the greatest darkness. Why? Because darkness is simply the absence of light. And as soon as light is present, darkness is destroyed. Every time the sun comes up, the, the darkness flees to the other side of the earth, right? I mean, it simply cannot, darkness can't exist in light because darkness is the absence. Of light. So considering the earthly sun and considering what we know about the light of the world, that fairly informative, right? Now, here's the thing. Jesus is not claiming to be the sun. I think that's fairly obvious that he probably knows he is not a giant ball of incandescent gas floating through the universe, right? He, he knows that he is not simply burning. What he's saying is, is metaphorically, he's like the sun. Now, it doesn't make it a whole lot easier <laughs> uh, to be to make this kind of claim that, that, that you are like the sun, metaphorically, is no less startling. He is, He's essentially claiming to be another kind of light, a different kind of light that is in fact just as important, if not more important, just as powerful, if not more powerful, the kind of light that gives life, not just to our bodies, but to our souls that he is radiating through the universe in such a way that like the sun, it gives life. In the same way all living things thrive in sunlight, what he's claiming is that you thrive in my presence. He gives life, health, vibrancy, warmth, color, Beauty to our souls. He is the source, then, of what gives warmth and power and energy to life. He he is the source of joy. He's the secret of contentment. He's the power of genuine creativity. He's the source of real energy. And all of that from simply basking in his presence, right? What do you do to receive the benefits of the sun? (laughs) You step into the sunlight. What he's saying is, I am the light of the world. And when you come into the circle of my influence, when you come into relationship with me, I operate with you very much like the sun operates with the rest of the universe, what he is saying is that a relationship with him is foundational to life, that, that a relationship with him is more life-giving, more joy-filled, more powerful than any other relationship. Now, think about this in terms of relationships, because while we're talking in, in big metaphorical terms, uh, it can be kind of foreign. It can kind of weird, but, but we all know what it is to live in the circle of human relationships, right? Think about someone you've loved. We've all loved somebody and been loved, right? I'm sure they've been flawed relationships because none of us is able to love fully and freely and completely, nor are we able to receive love fully and freely. But that isn't to say that we can't experience it. We, we do love and we desire love. And what ends up happening is that we experience life better with love. Think about it. Why do you like to hang out with people you love? Why do you want to go to a movie or to a dinner or take a drive or play a game with somebody instead of by yourself? Even if you're an extreme introvert and you're like, I crave alone time, you will eventually get sick of yourself and you will be like, I miss somebody. Maybe only one person in the entire universe, but you will miss somebody. Right? Even introverts need human relationships. Why? Because love lights our soul. When we orbit around someone and they orbit around us and we live in the circle of that mutual love of giving and receiving, it gives meaning to our lives. It makes every experience richer, more full, every color more vibrant, every taste more tasty. It gives meaning Power, purpose, and joy. What he is saying is that his relationship is foundational to experiencing life. I am the light of the world. I am the sun that shines. Every other light is a reflection of mine. Every other manifestation of love is simply a facet of me because I'm the source. That's what he's saying. In the same way that, that we gain our energy from the sun, He is the source. We may experience it in different manifestations and in different ways, but He is that central source of life. So we have to be careful here. And this is why, because I think often the radically exclusive nature of these claims can be a bit challenging for us, right? And here's this dude who's like, I am the light of the world. And so what ends up happening, um, especially in our culture, is, is that we like to basically reinterpret Jesus, right? A very popular way of thinking about this today is pretty much saying that, that Jesus is really just saying we're all lights, right? We, we all love and are loved and we bask in the love of one another. And, and he was coming as an example of what it meant to love. And so as we simply follow this example of loving and being loved, then we bask in the power of love. Pop theologians, you can find them on TV, you find them on all the bookshelves, really would say that Jesus is just one of many very wise people who is pulling back the curtain on the nature of reality giving us a glimpse into what makes human life genuinely worth living. And so the freedom here is really just to love and be loved and, and to receive. And, but you guys, we can't get around the fact that, that Jesus' statements are offensively exclusive. He's not saying, I am one light among many lights. He is not saying, I am the brightest light among many lights. He is saying, I am the light of the world. That's pretty exclusive. It's pretty demanding. Pretty crazy, honestly. A single man who had like 12 friends is saying, I am the light of the world. Reminds you of those uncomfortable conversations you had with the guy on the street corner with the wild eyes. I am the light of the world, right? It's radically exclusive language. Unless this man is more than just a man. Unless he is more than simply one more human among humans. And I want to make it clear that's exactly what he's claiming. That's exactly what he's saying about himself. Every single one of these I am statements as we go through reveal a different aspect of this radical claim and it was the understanding of the early church. His disciples had to wrestle with these claims and these audacious um, statements. We're going to unpack this a little bit, but I want you to see that this is, in fact, the general teaching of of both Jesus and the early um, disciples. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, um, introduces Jesus to us in his very first chapter, I'm going to throw these verses on the screen because I want you to to see in the very beginning of John chapter 1, when when Jesus is introduced to us, this is what John says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." All right, let me pause for a minute. I don't want to assume too much. What's all this talk about a word? Um, That's John's poetic way of speaking about Jesus. We know that because look down at the very end, which is verse 14, "...and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us." It's talking about Jesus the one who became man. But he preexisted, right? He wasn't created when he became a man. He preexisted. In the beginning was the Word. Why is he called the Word? Because it means he's the perfect expression of the thought of God. The Greek word logos there means that, that Jesus is the perfect manifestation of the character, the expression, the nature of God. He is God's Word to us. He is God's communication to us. He is God's expression of Himself to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, indicating that He was separate in personhood, and the Word was God, unified in nature. All right, here we have one of the many places where the New Testament writers kind of explore this crazy mystery we call the Trinity, right? This three who's, one what thing, okay? It's crazy, I get it, but, but that's how it's revealed and honestly, there's no real way to understand it because the more you dig into it, the more confusing it becomes, right? Seriously, I mean, it's three who's and one what. I don't get it, but that's, that's how he's revealed, right? He's with God, he was God, one in nature, separate in personality. Um, and we see that there is in fact a trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you have perfect community existing at the heart of God, right? So in the beginning, you have a self-contained God needing nothing self-contained in love, right? You need people to love. You can't love yourself. He's self-contained in love. He is the expression of giving and receiving love, of knowing and being known, of celebrating and being celebrated. He is the, the perfect experience of community and creativity and joy. And out of that, he created. He, the word, was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Genesis 1 and 2 is basically being summarized here. Uh, This idea that God created, not out of need, but out of joy. That the God of the universe, there was so much joy in Him, so much fullness of life in Him, that He created a world, a universe, universes, and a mankind unique out of all of creation created in His image. Why? to live in the overflow of his joy. There was so much of him. He simply wanted to pour it out on those that would also share the joy of him, his perfection, his his holiness, his creativity, his purpose. We were created to live in the overflow of all that he is. Like the earth lives in the rays of the sun. We were created to live in in the joy of the presence of God. Not because he needed us, but because he created us to need him. Not because he was lonely, but because there was so much joy and love and fullness of of relationship in him. The, The infinite capacity to love and be loved that he created so that he could pour himself out. And then he goes on, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So when we think about the the original intent of the creation, it was, in fact, so that we could live in the fullness of his life. This is really the outpouring of who he is. And his life was, in, in essence, the light of our being, the purpose. Every other relationship was not made less important by this, but more important because it was a manifestation of and a sharing of the greater gift of God himself. Now, we know from Genesis 3 that that isn't how it stayed. We know from our own daily life that that doesn't describe life today. There is a darkness in life. There's a darkness in our hearts. And the Bible ascribes that to a rebellion, in essence, against God, where our first parents basically said to God, you will not be the center, we will. We'll no longer look to you as the outpouring of all goodness. We will look to ourselves. We will no longer look to you for your provision. We will provide for ourselves. We will no longer look to you as God. We will be like God. And they rejected the authority and the presence and the gifts of God. And instead of looking to the giver of the gifts, they looked to the gifts themselves and said, you will be our God. I will look to the created order to give what only the creator can give. And that unleashed a darkness in the created order. And John describes that as the verse goes on, the light shines on the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. So our first parents plunged the entire created order into the darkness of rebellion against God. So what Jesus is saying, as he says, "I am the light of the world." He's saying, I created the whole thing. And it was my presence that was, everything was designed to to orbit my presence. Everything was created to find its warmth in the outpouring of my love. And when he came, he came as the author of life. And it is his life that gives light and warmth and power and beauty to our souls. But unlike the sun, the darkness that he came to to dispel isn't passive, right? Physical darkness, we describe that as simply the absence of light. The darkness that's in this world though, the darkness that is in our souls, isn't just a passive lack of light. It's very active. It's very restless and it resists the light. It hates the light. Because it hates letting God be God. There is within each one of us a desire to be like God. I don't want to be dependent. I don't want to be um, completely helpless. I, I want to take care of myself. I want to mark out my own future. I want to build my own identity. I will be like God. That darkness is restless and powerful. In fact, John um, describes it there. Let's shift the underline to change the highlight here. Look at those last two verses. In him was life, and the life was light of men. The light shines in the darkness. That is talking about the incarnation of Christ when Jesus became man, and the darkness has not overcome it. That word for overcome is pretty interesting. It's a Greek word, um, katalambano which means nothing to you, I know, but lombano to, to grab kata, to come alongside, is this idea of wrestling, grappling, right? So it's this idea that the darkness is grappling with the light, seeking to force it into submission, but it can't. Now, what's interesting is the word can also mean to come around something, to grasp it, as in to understand it. Like I can come all the way around something and I've I've got a full handle on it. I fully understand it. I think both are at play here. The idea is that the darkness is both trying to understand the nature of the light and overcome it. And it can do neither. It simply doesn't understand the nature of the light because it is wrapped in deception. Nor can it overcome the light. Because it is powerless in the face of it. The darkness of this world, the darkness of our own souls, is not passive. It is not powerless. And because the darkness Jesus came to destroy is the darkness that comes from our ejection of God's <laughs> presence and authority. When he came into the world, he didn't simply come as a passive beacon of light by which we might find our way. He came as an invading force into an enemy territory. He broke into this world. He didn't come quietly. He invaded. And he came to destroy the darkness and rescue us from its deceptive talons. Now, here's the thing, you guys Jesus came to live a life that was unique because he knew where it was going. He knew he was the light of the world, but he also knew that his light would be eclipsed by the darkness. He came to die. He was born on mission, and that mission was to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we deserve to die. He was unique among mankind in that he came to be our Messiah. That's the Jewish terminology, our substitute, our rescuer from this realm of darkness. 1 Corinthians 2.8 puts it this way. It says, Had the lords or the rulers of this age known what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, when Jesus was rejected and and nailed to the cross, that was darkness trying to extinguish the light. That was supposed to be like the knockout blow. Right? This resisting, this restlessness, this, this anger, this angst rose up to destroy. Once again, I reject. The giver of light. Had they known what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Why? Because in killing him, they killed themselves. In crucifying Jesus in rejection, they provided the way for those who had rejected Jesus to once again find life. Because God was working through their rebellion to give mankind a way out of our rebellion. He worked through the darkness to provide a way back to the light. When Jesus was crucified, he did it in our place, the perfect innocent one, the perfect obedient human. Dying as our substitute in our place. Paul puts it this way. He says, he who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross, became the embodiment of our rebellion, the embodiment of our rejection, our embodiment of our, our betrayal. That was crushed so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, so that we, in Him taking away our record of sin, might receive His record of obedience, that we might once again be brought into the orbit of life. The gulf of separation removed because Christ laid down His life in our place, once again brought into the holy, righteous presence of God. Because we are covered with the holy and righteous record of Christ. See, in their attempt to extinguish the light, the rulers of darkness broke it open. The cross and the resurrection were an explosion of light. And when we look at the cross and we see it for what it is, it reveals our lies that we believe about ourselves and our lies that we believe about God. Because we see in the cross our sin. We see that our best efforts are not good enough and and our greatest failures are not terminal and end the story. We see a God who sees us as we are and loves us in spite of ourselves. We were so bad, he had to die. That was the price that had to be paid. But we were so loved that God, God willingly became flesh, that he might be rejected again. And in that rejection, work our redemption. The cross shows us our heart, the deceptive nature of our desire to be like God and shows us God's heart, his determination to love us in spite of us, his determination to bless us in spite of our attempt to rob him of his glory. We see in him the ever-present invitation back into relationship, that God does not look at us and reject us. He hasn't separated himself from our suffering. Instead, he has entered into it, so fully identifying with us that he became one of us, that we might become one of his. So Jesus came, you guys, as a different kind of light. And, and he came to destroy a different kind of darkness, And the end result is that this requires from us a different kind of seeing. John actually goes into great detail about this in some ways in John chapter 9. Now, I don't have time to read the entire story, but I love it. In John chapter 9, we have the story of a man born blind. And I'm going to encourage you on your own time, giving you homework here, I want you to read it, okay? John chapter 9. And uh, it's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. It is an incredible short story filled of irony and humor. Um, uh, the Apostle John, the, the one who wrote this book, I think of him in, in some ways as one of the most creative of the New Testament writers, one of the most poetic, and, and man, he knows how to tell a story. And in chapter 9, you just see layers upon layers of irony. So I'm going to give you a little summary of this story because what John is doing is, is in essence showing us that, that Jesus' actions... Illustrated his words. So at the beginning of John chapter 9, Jesus shows up and he says the same thing. He's like, Behold, I am the light of the world. And he comes across a man born blind. Now I want you to consider him for a moment. A man born blind at this point in time really has very little resource he really can't do much to support himself. He can't work. He can't make money. He's, he's dependent on society around him. And so what this guy did is he basically had a very small world that, that he would navigate on a daily basis. And part of his normal routines would to go sit in public places and beg for support. Now, this was a fairly small community. And so most of the people coming by knew him. We'll call him Bob. Okay. And so most people knew Bob when they came by and, and, and those that were friends with him and and familiar with him would probably give him money on a fairly regular basis. Others um, would probably ignore him in the same way every single day, but there's Bob, right? He's just this ever present blind dude sitting in the same spot. And, and, and I'm sure some people stopped and had long conversations with him, right? I'm, I'm guessing based on John's description of him that, Bob was fairly intelligent. He probably had a great sense of humor, probably a sharp wit, I'm thinking as well. He, he knew how to give a barb. And, uh, and so he was the kind of guy that, that intelligent people would enjoy stopping and, and talking with. Okay? But you always knew Bob, right? He was just this guy. So Jesus walks up to him. Behold, I am the light of the world. And then he does weird stuff because that's what he does. He spits in the dirt. And then he plays in it. And then he takes the mud and he shoves it in the guy's eyes. <laughs> I don't know about you, but at this point I'm thinking, what's going on? I'm just looking for a little money. Don't need you shoving dirt on my face. All right, light of the world, dude, whatever, right? And then Jesus is like, go to this pool called Siloam and I want you to wash your face. So he gets up, he knows the way, he's familiar with the area. He goes to the pool, he washes his face and he can see. This is a guy who had learned how to go through life handicapped. He only had four senses. So he relied on what he heard. He relied on what he felt. He relied on how he had memorized his environment. And for the first time he looked up and how incredibly overwhelming it must have been to see. He hears something and he's like, that's not what I thought that was. There's that. So he, I'm sure he would close his eyes to get his bearings and find his way around a little bit. And then he'd be like, that's what that looks like? That's what that is? And he would meet people and he didn't know who they were. He had never seen their faces before. And so people are coming up to him. They're like, hey, Bob. He's like, hey, talk some more. What do you mean, talk? Oh, oh, you're John. Yeah. Because he knew it was their voice, but he didn't know their face. What ended up happening is that people saw him, didn't think it was really him. Think about how the expressions of his face would change. As he saw people he had never seen. And at first it'd be just confusion. Like, oh, that's what you look like. Right? And, then, and then they would talk and he'd be like, oh, you're so-and-so. Or, oh, you're so You know, it's like all of these things are probably going across his face. And, and I'm sure they're completely unfiltered because of the overwhelming nature of simply seeing. And so people were asking, is this really Bob? It looks like Bob. Sounds like Bob. But his expressions, his face. There's something fundamentally different about him. He sees life in a new way. He's experiencing life in a way that we've never seen him experience it before. So they do what is, in fact, perfectly natural in this culture. They take Bob to the Pharisees. Now, this isn't to accuse him. This isn't to get him in trouble. Pharisees, a lot of times, are bad guys in the New Testament. So we think every time they show up, they're the bad guys. They were the religious leaders of the day. And so, when something crazy came up that everyone needed an explanation for, they would go to the leaders of the of the community. They would go to the Pharisees, right? And so, they brought uh, the blind man to the Pharisees to uh, to get some answers. This was a bad day for the Pharisees. Um, I don't know if you remember two weeks ago when we talked about the first I am. That was John chapter eight. That's the previous chapter. John chapter eight. The chapter ended with them trying to kill Jesus. Right? He had gotten so far under their skin, they were like, we're going to stone you now. Right? We're going to kill you for your blasphemy and your challenges and the way you, you undermine us. Right? They're not having a good time with Jesus because Jesus is not supporting them. They're being challenged by him publicly and, and in ways that were, that were very difficult. People were starting to question their authority and in and their interpretations. And, 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 and Jesus just wasn't playing nice. Right? So here comes this point. You can imagine how this went down. Right? The Pharisees are having a bad day, and then here comes this crowd of people, and they're like, hey, we we brought you Bob. Yeah? Why? Well, Jesus healed him. Oh. Seriously? Come on. Does this guy ever stop? Like, they, they kept, seriously, when you read the tone of the chapter, they're exasperated because Jesus keeps doing things they can't explain. And it just drives them crazy because they have to find a way to undermine his credibility. And so, like, he was born blind. They're like, bring him to us. And were you really born blind? Yeah. Well, how can you explain it? How do you explain you were healed? I was born blind. Now I see. That's all I can tell you. And they're like, so, like, tell us how he did it. Well, he spit on the ground. He made mud and he put it in my eyes. Oh my goodness, so mad. And I'll tell you why. Because he did this on Sabbath. He did this on a Saturday. One of the Ten Commandments is, you shall obey the Sabbath and keep it holy by not doing any work on that day, right? And that's all the law basically says, is is don't work on on the Sabbath, right? So what the Jews did is is the religious leaders said, okay, there's the rule, obey the Sabbath. We're gonna put a bunch of rules around it. And and, and because we wanna make sure that that rule is really protected. And so they put like hundreds of rules around it And then basically said, all of our rules are as weighty and as important as God's. And so if you break one of our rules, that's the same thing as breaking God's rule. So they had all kinds of crazy stuff. One of the commentators I read said that Jesus broke like seven specific rules just in the way he did this, right? He spit in the ground, I don't know, that irrigation, okay? Um, He made mud tilling, right? He packed his eyes, construction? I don't know. But it's doing these things, right? Now, here's the thing. I mean, they were so specific. If somebody was injured on the Sabbath, they couldn't be healed unless it was life-threatening. So if you broke your arm on the Sabbath, man, you're out of luck. Forget you. You got to wait till the next day to get your bones set. Why? Because that's work. We can't work on the Sabbath, right? Unless you're going to die, okay? If you're going to die, then we'll condescend and let somebody fix you. But that's a sign of God's judgment on you that you got so hurt on the Sabbath, right? I mean, they really were like this, just so proud of the way they... And so they hear about Jesus, healed him, did it through this... Like, I mean, that really is weird, you guys. I mean, sometimes Jesus just says a word and people are healed. Why did he spit? I'm thinking he did it to get under their skin. That's my thought. I think he purposely did it to... So they're infuriated, so like half of them are like, he did this incredible thing. How do we explain it? The other half are like, he has to be a sinner because he's not obeying our rules. So they set out to discredit him. They set out to destroy him. They can't get anywhere with a man born blind because... He's kind of playing dumb, and you can tell he's kind of playing. I mean, he keeps giving the answers that are the right answers, but he's giving them in just the right way that uh, that kind of get under their skin. So finally, they decide to call in the kid's parents or the guy's parents and say, "All right, let's let's see if we can get somewhere with him." So they bring in the parents, and they're like, "They're like, all right, is this your son, Bob? Yeah. Was he really born blind? Yeah. Well, how come he can see now? They're like, you can read it. They're like. We think you better ask him. He's of legal age. We're not going to, why don't you talk to him? So they're infuriated. They're like, because they're threatening. Basically, they have the authority to put people out of the synagogue, to basically disrupt their entire social network. And so they're coming in with intimidation and threats and this weight of power, and, and, and they're not getting anywhere. They can't, it's like, you're, you know, it's like you're using the wrong tool to get the right job done. All they've got is a hammer. And so they keep just pounding it, and they're so infuriated that it's not getting where they want to go. So they call the man born blind back in, and this time they're just being very direct. They're like, we know this man is a sinner. Give glory to God and admit he's a sinner. We can't deny the, the miracle, but, but if you at least admit he's a sinner, that he did the wrong thing on the wrong day, then we, we have something to work with here. And the man born blind said, essentially... Has it ever been heard of that a man born blind has ever been healed? Isn't that a sign of something important? Isn't that like light breaking into a dark world? Isn't that kind of like life the way it's supposed to be? That broken things get healed? That hurt things get fixed? That dark things are enlightened? isn't this kind of a good thing? And then they wouldn't receive it. I said, no, no. In fact, we're so infuriated. Tell us the whole story again. Tell us again how he healed you. And the guy's like, you guys are really asking a lot of questions. Would you like to become his disciples too? That was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, they just broke. And they're frothing at the mouth. And it's this image. They're so angry. So they're like, you're just a man born blind. What else can they do? And they kick him out. They kick him out. All right, now think about the characters of this story. You have the man born blind. You have the Pharisees and you have the parents. Are the Pharisees walking in light in any way, shape, or form? They're really not. They have a kingdom to protect. They have a reputation to build. And so they are determined to protect it at any cost. They are willing to silence any voice, to to twist any story, because in their mind, they're so right, they simply have to find a way to prove you're wrong. It doesn't really matter if you actually are because we assume you are, right? I have to be right because my entire life is built on this. My entire reputation is built on this. Everything I know about myself is built on me being right. And they're so determined to be right. They're enslaved to the darkness. Then you have the parents. The parents come in and, and you almost feel sorry for them. And, and, but kind of the same thing. They come in and they're so determined to protect their acceptance in the community. They're so determined to protect their their comfort that they also refuse to simply speak the truth and testify to the light. Who's the freest person in the entire story? At the end of the story, when the blind man who now sees walks out rejected by the Pharisees, do you think he's like downcast? Oh, man, they don't like me. Oh, man, they've rejected me. I have a feeling like he walked out like full of joy. For, for probably one of the first times in his life, head held high. Why? Because <laughs> he was starting to experience the warmth of the sun. he was starting to experience life as it was supposed to be. Not life controlled by what people think. Not life controlled by your need to prove yourself. Not life controlled by by somehow establishing your own righteousness. He was a helpless person, completely devoid of any ability to help himself. And Jesus showed up and met him in his need and simply poured out his goodness on him. And he received the benefit. That's freedom. The fundamental difference between the man born blind and the other characters of the story, humility versus pride. See, the darkness that we're talking about that has invaded this world, the darkness that is so restless in our hearts is a darkness of pride. It is us simply saying, I will be like God. I know what's best for me. I will provide for myself. I will not be dependent. I will establish my own glory. I will be like God. See, a new way of seeing is founded in a fundamental humility that says, I'm not God, nor can I be. I have no way to fix myself, no way to prove myself. And because of the work of Christ, I don't have to. I can rest in the work of the one who did it for me. That's the humblest place to be. It's also the place of greatest freedom, joy, and power. To simply delight in the love of God poured out to us in the person of Christ, our acceptance from God through the work of Jesus. Not because I earned it, not because I was good enough, not because I measure up, but because Christ measured up for me. The darkness that's in our hearts, you guys, doesn't simply go away when you become a believer and follower of Jesus. That's why he talks about those who follow me will walk in the light. There's a progressive movement in which we are called into greater and greater dependency, greater and greater freedom, greater and greater amounts of orbiting around the source of light. Instead of looking to our families, our jobs, our success, our records, our acceptance, to try to find the warmth of life, we more and more come to depend on the finished work of Christ. God's love manifests to us in Christ. And in so doing, we find freedom. And every other area of our life is enriched and filled with color and power and joy. Because we are walking in the light. This new way of seeing, though, while it's driven by faith, is founded in humility. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it is a declaration of truth, whether we keep our eyes closed or not, whether we refuse to see it or not. And often we do because the darkness in our hearts wrestles against this. But there is an invitation and promise of greater freedom and joy and life and color and creativity and power and energy than you can imagine. And praise God, has made manifest and given to us in the person and work of Jesus. You guys, we're going to move into a time of response, and I'm going to put some questions on the screen and ask you to pray and do some business with God. During this time of reflection, if you want to fill out those worship response cards, we would love to get those back from you there in the bulletin. You don't have to be a newcomer to fill those out. We would love to pray with you and for you if you have prayer requests. If you're new here, we would love to know how you came, if somebody invited you, if you heard about us in some other way, if you would indicate that on there. And just drop them in the response boxes, um, either during communion or after the service. We'd love to hear from you. If you're a first-time guest, we have a gift for you at Connection Point. Um, We're not going to be weird. We're not going to try and put a tracker on you. Um, We just want to honor you for for being our guest, and so we invite you to, to visit Connection Point. So our response questions as we move into a time of response. First of all, Have you seen yourself in God in light of the cross? Because the cross is the clearest demonstration of the heart of God, the Word of God made flesh, dying in our place and rising again that we might be forgiven. If you're wanting to know more about becoming a follower of Jesus, if you have questions technical questions, difficult questions, we would love to walk with you in those. Simply let us know. Go to Connection Point and and we'll meet with you and we'll talk with you. If you want to become a follower of Jesus, but you don't know what that means, talk to us. We would love to walk with you in that. Secondly, where are you having a hard time trusting God to be the light that guides you? Because I guarantee there's somewhere in your life right now that you are resisting the light of God. Where is that for you? Because that's going to be your point of pride. Where is that point that you don't want to let God be God? You don't want to be dependent. You don't want to have to submit to his will. You don't want to go his direction. Maybe it's a choice where you're like, I, don't, I see where God wants me to go and I don't like the trajectory that puts me on. I think I'll keep my own will, my own choice. At least identify it to begin with. And then thirdly, let light in. Because the only way we come to see truth is to be enlightened to truth. It is not innate to us, it has to be given to us. So, how can you let more light in to increase your trust? And I'm going to be real simple with this. What are your daily habits with the Word of God? Are you opening it and reading it prayerfully, devotionally, and letting God speak to your heart, not just to study it, to become a master of it, not just so that you can put your time in and check it off the box, but actually, opening it up to sit in the very presence of God, to come into the light of the world and let him enlighten you. Coming into community and letting other followers of Christ speak into your life and have a voice in your decisions. As difficult and as humbling as that is, God speaks through community. God works through his body. The church, are you in community? Are you letting people in to be a source and influence of light? You guys, I'm going to pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Um, let me pray for us, Father. I thank you that you are um, you are the source of all that is beautiful and valuable and good, and you are the ultimate example to us of humility. when we offend you, when we reject you, when we tell lies about you in our own heart, you don't become offended and walk away. You persistently invite us to truth. Yes, we are broken. Yes, you still love us. Yes, we have a great need, but yes, we have a greater Savior. Father, I pray that you will break our hearts with that love. And in that breaking, Lord, we'll see that ultimately all you're really breaking is our pride and releasing us to the freedom and the power of humility, of simply being what we are created to be. Father, I pray that you'll make that invitation powerful, palpable, irresistible in our lives, because only you can. So Spirit, I ask that you will soften our hearts, enlighten our eyes and draw our affections to yourself. You guys take a few moments to pray and, and we'll share communion together in a moment.